Tonight's talk is on working with afflictive emotions. One of the great challenges of being human is dealing with sticky emotional states based in greed and aversion. So dealing with wanting, craving, greed, covetousness, envy, fear, anger, sadness, annoyance, rage, hatred, etc., etc. The Buddha said that our suffering comes from these afflictive states of mind or reactions to life based in not understanding life deeply, based in ignorance. Last spring, the Dalai Lama was visiting Smith College over near where I live, and um, after he gave a speech, he took some questions, and one question that he got was, what is the most important thing in life? He surprised me because, first of all, he said it depends on who you are. He said if you're a young person, we were at a college, he said maybe the most important thing is to find somebody to marry. And he said if you're a business person, maybe the most important thing is to make a profit. So he surprised me with his (laughs) open-mindedness. But then he said, but if you're a serious practitioner, and I'm going to include all of you in that category, He said the most important thing in life is learning how to work with afflictive emotions. That's pretty powerful to say that that's the most important thing in life. An afflictive emotion is described as one that disturbs the balance or equilibrium of the mind and causes suffering. So there may be some mind states or emotions that disturb the mind but don't cause suffering, and I'll mention one later. Those wouldn't be called afflictive emotions, but both of these uh, conditions need to be present. So as we can see from that uh, answer to that question from the Dalai Lama, working with afflictive mind states or emotions is a very central part of our practice. Now, this is not to deny that life has its share of pleasant and beautiful emotions also. Happiness, joy, love, compassion, bliss, equanimity, etc. It's also not to suggest that all of you should be struggling with emotions or mired in emotions and that if you're not, you better start looking. (laughs) You have to remember that the talks we give up here, you know, they're they're, um, general and that it may not be that you're actually having that experience at that time. So don't worry if you're not suffering from (laughs) afflictive mind states. (laughs) However, interestingly, when we talk about afflictive mind states, we often think that, like I'm going to be talking about a very gross level, and um, lots of my examples will be on a gross level, but the truth of the matter is that dealing with afflictive mind state stays with us through our whole practice. They just get subtler. So you may not be dealing with, you know, long bouts of rage, but there may be aversion present in the mind. So we get to continue exploring uh, working with afflictive mind states throughout our practice. A lot of times people will find, too, that there will be a period of practice where there will be um, a lot of turbulence in the mind, and the turbulence is these afflictive emotions, or afflictive mind states. And then there will be periods where there's much more calm and happiness and peace and equanimity that often they will alternate with each other. So perhaps right now you're not in one of those turbulent periods, but you're in a rather calm period. 
So tonight we're going to talk about finding freedom from being seduced, ensnared, and disturbed by our emotions while not having to reject any part of our human experience. So we all, most of us seem to have our favorite one or two afflictive emotion. My own specialty is fear. And we often, well, sometimes we're even driven to practice in the first place by this particular challenge. And we often come to practice thinking, okay, I'm going to get rid of that. That's, that's why I'm here, to get rid of fear, or get rid of anger, or whatever it happens to be, get rid of anxiety. It's really important to remember that our greatest challenge is also our greatest teacher. The Sufi poet Rumi said, everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. Perhaps this afflictive mind state that um, drove us to practice is what will change us to a well-baked loaf. Often what challenges most is actually our doorway to freedom. For one reason, because it motivates us, we're motivated to look deeply, and it can teach us the most. So later I'll be talking about fear specifically, sharing the results of over 20 years' experience of research into fear through my practice. But let's start talking just a little bit um, about dealing with afflicted mind states in general. So how can we do this skillfully? There's a couple of ways we usually or the untrained worldling, as the Buddha would put it, the untrained worldling responds to emotions. And many of us, um, through our strong conditioning, continue to respond to emotions in this way. And that's either to drown or to avoid. So often some emotion will come along and we'll get lost in it, completely lost in it. We'll believe the story we'll lose perspective, we'll lose clarity, we'll suffer, we'll be overwhelmed. And we, when we drown in these afflictive mind states, we create these whole worlds and universes so effectively that we inhabit them and believe them to be real. I think it's one of the wonders of this world, how that happens. It's just amazing. So fear comes along and there's this whole story I'll tell myself about fear and about something that's going to happen or whatever. And when we're lost in an emotional state, we actually believe that story. It's amazing. So then the other extreme, perhaps, that we'll go to is we'll avoid emotions, feeling emotions. We'll do everything we can not to feel a certain emotion. So we'll get restless, we'll have distractions, we'll try not to even stop and face ourselves. You know that many people think you're crazy to be here, partly for this reason. You have stopped, you are facing yourself. So we'll do whatever we can to not face the emotion, perhaps repress it. And this works temporarily in a certain way. But I think we know in our hearts that it isn't peace. If we are running from and avoiding these afflictive mind states, there's always a sense of being agitated, uh, uneasy, wondering when they're going to pop out. It doesn't solve our problem. So what we propose through meditation is a third alternative, a middle way. And this is learning to be with these afflictive mind states with mindfulness and metta. So to actually turn towards them and see how we can hold them in a way that's skillful and that we can learn. So we actually have this option to become intimate with 
these emotions. Dogen, the well-known Zen master, said, Enlightenment is intimacy with all things. So he didn't say all things minus your great challenge, (laughs) minus fear, (laughs) intimacy with all things. Ram Das, when he was once asked about his practice, you know, how, how it had gone, he said, I've become a connoisseur of my neuroses. So that's another way of looking at it. We get to uh, sit and become a connoisseur of our neuroses. Get to know them very well. There's a story from long ago of a queen who ruled in a kingdom, had a beautiful big palace, castle. And one day when she was gone, this demon monster came to visit. And he came and uh, kind of got in, snuck in when the guards weren't uh, paying any attention, and went up and sat on the throne. The guards were um, quite upset with this and started to yell at him, go away, you don't belong there, that's not your throne, that's the queen's throne. And uh, as they yelled at him, he kind of grew a little bit, got a little bigger. And then they started to throw rocks at him and their spears at him, and he got a little bigger, continued to grow. And whatever they did to try to get rid of him, torment him, he just continued to grow. So while this was happening, the queen came back, and she was a wise queen. She came back, and she saw what was happening, and she said, wait a moment, wait a moment, you know, back off. She turns to the big demon, and she says, hello. And he's like, this was not what he was used to. So he shrunk just a little bit. And then she said, perhaps you'd like some tea. This was quite shocking to the demon. He was completely befuddled, and he shrank just a little bit more. And he thought, I can't let her get off this easy. So he vomited this gross green stuff all over the front of him, all over the floor, to try to scare her and get her upset. She was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Look at what happened. Let me get you a towel and help you clean yourself up. Well, this totally threw him, grew a little bit smaller, and by the time the tea arrived, he was quite a civilized young man, young fellow, sat down with her to have some tea, and she said to him, okay, now how can I help you? Do you have any information for me that would be helpful? What do you need? He said, well, first of all, I think you need to talk to your guards. And then they proceeded to have a civilized conversation. The Buddha said, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. I think you probably understood that this story reflected how we often deal with these afflictive mind states. We try to get rid of them in any way we can, and this actually empowers them more, makes them stronger. That when we can turn to them with curiosity, kindness, we see that they lose their power, and that perhaps they may even have information that will be helpful for us to know. But you'll forget this. In our research, we have ups and downs, So we may have times that we can be mindful of these afflictive mind states, and then we have times where we're just going to get stuck and sticky in them. Maybe a little bit like Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby, where there's a Tar Baby next to the road, and Br'er Rabbit uh, tries to... um, What does he try to do? I can't remember at the moment. But anyway, he puts in his hand, and then he tries to get his... Oh, he gets stuck, yeah, with his hand on the tar baby, and then he tries to 
get his hand off and then he puts his other hand to try to get his hand off and he gets that one stuck and then he tries to put his foot and he gets stuck and then he puts and before you know it he's totally stuck trying to get unstuck sometimes it's like that when an afflictive mind state takes us over my teacher Michelle McDonald says it's like learning to ride a bike you're going to fall off just count on it have any of you out here learned to ride a bike without falling off? <laughs> and so we learn not to be afraid of falling off. It's part of the process. So to understand that and be gentle with ourselves, knowing that there will be times when we're going to get stuck and we'll use them for learning. I think we also need to get over the idea that there's something wrong with our practice if we are feeling emotions, or afflictive mind states. I know that when I first came to practice, came here in um, 1984, I um, was pretty wound tight. Let's just say I didn't grow up in the most favorable um, circumstances. And so I um, had developed a lot of defenses. I, was, I think people would have described me as uptight pretty um, pretty tough. So I came to this um, retreat here, and uh, I had done one other retreat before. I had to do one as a prerequisite, and that I got through all right. But this one, around day 10, I suddenly got whomped with all of these emotions that I had no idea I was capable of feeling. <laughs> so I was like, I went into this interview with Joseph and I was, I was crying and I'm like, oh, and I'm angry and sad and I'm lonely and annoyed and I'm afraid. And I, I mean, I went on, I think I listed like 12, 12 emotions or something around there. Really quite distraught. So Joseph listens to me very patiently. And then afterwards he says, what's the problem? <laughs> it was like the best teaching. I was, I was just, I was like that monster on the throne. I was like, what? You mean there isn't a problem? It hadn't occurred to me that there wasn't a problem. He said, go take a walk. <laughs> it's not a problem. This is how we learn. So I proceeded during this retreat then to learn how to work effectively with all of these different emotions that came up. And so doing this by exploring what is this mind state? How do I experience it in my mind? What kinds of thoughts come up? What's the texture of the mind? How do I feel it and experience it in the body? What kinds of sensations arise with it? So in our exploration of afflictive mind states, we're really interested in what a mind state is and the process of a mind state, not as interested in the story. That's not what we mean by getting intimate with and understanding a mind state, but actually noticing how do they arise? How do I get ensnared? What's my relationship to it? How, what's my attitude towards this emotion? It's really like doing research, but not thinking research, direct research. What happens when this mind state arises? And then we notice that emotions are very related to thoughts. Usually there's some obsessive story that goes on when thoughts arise. Not often, not always. Sometimes there will just be a, an experience of pure emotion, but many times there will be obsessive thoughts. There's this great word in Pali. I don't know if you've heard it yet, this retreat. Papancha. It's the tendency of the mind to proliferate. So the mind will start with something and then keep thinking about it, and it's like a snowball rolling down a hill, getting larger and larger and larger. So when there's an emotion present, we tend to papancha. 
So we may be angry at somebody. We'll start thinking about what they did and what's wrong with them and how they're always wrong and how they've done that a million times and how we're going to get back at them and et cetera, et cetera. So we have to get very familiar then with papanchaing. How does this work? One of my favorite quotes about obsessive thinking is from Mark Twain. He said, I've experienced many disasters in my life, most of which never happened. So if we find there's um, stories that keep repeating, we can find some way to help us be mindful of them. Maybe give them a, a name. Super Yogi Tape. That was one of my favorites. Or there's the top ten, so you can say, oh, it's a top hit number one, top hit number two. Really anything to help us relate with a little bit more flexibility. My mom is also a, a meditator, and she talked about one retreat where she noticed so many thoughts kept coming up about I, I, I. And uh, her name's Mary Jo, so she called it the Mary Jo Show. which I thought was a nice, uh, humorous way to hold it. Anything that can help us be more flexible and light. Then it's interesting to explore these afflictive mind states from the perspective of self. Is it me? Is it mine? If it's mine, shouldn't I be able to control it? Can I control it? How does it arise and pass away? So we explore these afflictive mind states and find, slowly usually, that it's not a problem. And we try to do this exploration with an attitude of metta and compassion, It may not be possible at first. At first we may find that really we want it to go away. That's okay. We start right where we are. Vipassana is about being honest with what's really happening. So looking at the attitude towards the emotion and perhaps inclining the mind towards a little bit of kindness, a little bit of compassion... Through this process, what we start to see is that we increase our tolerance for being with the unpleasantness of afflictive mind states, the unpleasant body sensations, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant contraction of the heart. And through this process, we see that our spaciousness actually increases because we don't have to get rid of anything. We've made space in our hearts for all of our experience. This is freedom. And then we find that these difficult emotions, our afflictive emotions, decrease because we aren't reactive to them, like the demon on the throne. We let them be, we let them arise and pass away. A number of years ago, I went on a retreat to Burma. I decided that practice in the United States was feeling a little bit um, easy, and I wanted to be a little more challenged. I have a rather sensitive body, so sensitive system, so I figured it was going to be kind of challenging for me, but I was ready for that. So the first day I get to the monastery in the Sagain Hills, beautiful area of Burma. And I'm led off to my little kuti, my little hut. And the first thing I discover is that the cabinet in there is filled with mothballs, and mothballs are not, they don't go well with my system, let's just say. (laughs) So I was like, oh my, okay, well, let's see what we can do about this. So we tried to carry this big cabinet out on the porch, And then as we did that, um, I pulled a muscle. I pulled something in my back. I mean, I heard it go pop. (laughs) 
So I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a little challenging. And then um, we went to see the room where we were going to have the uh, the seminar that I was there for, and they just built this building and painted all the cement floors with this oil-based um, cement paint, which actually had a lot to do with my original health problems. So um, I was like, I, I was noticing that I was starting to panic a little bit. And um, so then... Uh, I found out that my kuti, which had a beautiful view and was um, just a lovely little hut, was right above all the fires from the um, the town, and I kind of suffer from asthma a little bit. So I started to worry about whether I was going to be able to breathe in the next few weeks. And then that first night, they had this um, big celebration for all these monks that um, were taking robes. And there's this all-night celebration. And when they have, for those of you who've been in Asia, when they have um, all-night celebrations, they tend to rent these trucks with these big loudspeakers. They're really loud. And so this went on. I think they might have stopped between about 2 and 4, but most of the night. So I just thought, oh, my God, I am not going to survive the next three weeks. And I started to really experience a lot of panic. And then on top of it, um, it it had taken me five airplane flights to get there, so and five to go home, and there weren't wasn't like email at, the, at this monastery, so I was pretty much trapped. There wasn't really anywhere I was going to be able. It was going to be pretty hard to get out of there um, before um, the three weeks were over. So I said, "Well," so I really I started to experience a lot of panic and um, fear that I was not going to survive, and. Um, So I just stopped and sat down with myself, and I said, well, if the next three weeks is about understanding panic, all right, this is okay. I'm signing up for this. And I got really interested in panic, which I didn't think you could be interested in. For those of you who have experienced panic, it's it's pretty much get me out of here, period. (laughs) End of story. And um, it was just fascinating to watch how it would come in waves. It would start like low and come up, and then the waves would go down. Just fascinating to see what my mind did when it was present. And it was a very liberating experience. Since that experience, I found that I could do a lot more than I thought I could do because I was willing to feel panic. I didn't have to run from panic. Panic didn't need to control my life. This is an example of some of the freedom that we can feel when we turn towards what's difficult, what's most challenging, and are willing to sign up for the investigation sometimes um these afflictive mind states in, in Buddhism are personified in the figure of Mara. It's a little bit like a Christian devil. He's sometimes called the evil one. And a lot of times when you read the stories of the uh, early monks and nuns and the Buddha, Mara likes to come around and cause trouble. He likes to see if he can bother people. So I was looking this morning, you know, looking at these different, some of these different stories, and it's like, how do they deal with Mara? Which is a little bit like us. How do we deal with these afflictive mind states? Well, most of the stories, they sit tight. I mean, that's, that's the main thing they do. They don't fight with Mara. They don't tell him to go away. They basically say, I know you, Mara. That's the line that often comes out, I know you, Mara. And then after that, Mara thinks, so-and-so knows me, you know, so-and-so, whoever it happens to be in the story, it's the same line almost always, so-and-so knows me, and sad and dejected, he vanishes. (laughs) I have one one of these stories, if I can find it. No? 
I guess I can't find it. I was going to read to you one of the nuns, but I think I lost it. Nope, here it is. There was one nun in the time of the Buddha, uh, Kisogatami. She, um, she had lost her son and was quite upset, as one you would expect one to be in that kind of a situation. And there's a whole process of grieving that she goes through with the Buddha and she becomes a nun. So in this story, Mara's decided that he's going to cause her dismay. And it says, Thus I have heard, once at Sarvati, the Lord stayed at Anathapindika's Jetta Grove. The nun, Kisa Gotami, having dressed, went one morning into town with her robe and bowl to beg for food. After her alms round and after she had returned with her alms food, she ate. Then she went into the dark forest to spend the day there. Arriving in the dark forest, she sat down at the foot of a tree. Then Mara, the evil one, wanting to inspire fear and terror and to ruin her meditation, went to that same place. Having gone there, he spoke spoke this verse to her. What's going on? You look as if your child has died. You sit alone. Tears streak your face. You've come to the woods alone. Are you looking for a man? But Kisogatami thought, is this a human being or not? It must be Mara. He has spoken this first because he wants to terrify me and ruin my meditation. When she knew this for certain, that this was none other than the evil one Mara, she addressed him as thus. I have finished with the death of my child, and men belong to that past. I don't grieve anymore. I'm not afraid of you. This is the line. I'm not afraid of you, friend. And then the last verse is um, a traditional one for reaching enlightenment. Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed, the great dark is torn apart, and death, you too, are destroyed. So she says to Mara, I'm not afraid of you, friend. She doesn't say go away. She just says, I'm not afraid of you. I know you. And many of them, it's I know you. There's one that I read this morning that I really loved. After a particular bout with the Buddha, when Mara, again, couldn't um, couldn't overcome him, it says, Mara went away from that spot and sat down cross-legged on the ground, not far from the Blessed One, silent, dismayed, with his shoulders drooping, downcast, brooding, unable to speak, scratching the ground with a stick. (laughs) Can't you just see it? (laughs) Mara's like, I couldn't get him again. (laughs) So we don't have to make Mara go away. We can just say, I know you, Mara. But to know Mara, we have to be willing to turn towards and investigate these afflictive emotions. And then sometimes, when we really know Mara, we can say no to certain emotions that come to torment us. If we've cultivated some uh, understanding and, and acceptance, then we can say no, but not out of aversion, which will only strengthen it, but rather out of caring and wisdom. It's kind of like setting limits for that demon on the throne. Here at um, IMS, there was uh, a number of years ago, there was a particular person that I, whenever I saw her, I experienced a lot of envy. She seemed to have everything that I wanted she had great connections with the teachers, a job at the center. You know, I, it could go on and on. And I would visit here I, I, at different times of the years. I've um, spent more or less time here. But back then I wasn't coming a lot, but I would visit sometimes. I'd walk into the lunch, staff lunchroom, which is where everything happens here at, um, at IMS on staff. So I'd go in there, and sometimes I would see her. And this story would just get I would just get overwhelmed with envy. The story would start going in my mind, and I'd believe it about how um, lucky she was and how um, unlucky I was and, and uh, 
so on and so forth. And I noticed over the years, um, I would work with this, right? And so when first it would happen, I would just get totally lost in the story. I would suffer a lot. I would believe it. Um, and it was, it was not very pleasant. And then over the years, I would, then over time, I would start seeing that I would see her, and I'd have the story, and I would be mindful of the story while I continued to have it. So, you know, I would still kind of do the same thing, but I would start to be mindful in the process, not like remembering it afterwards. And then I would come, and I would notice that um, I would start with the story, and I would almost be just a little bored of it like okay this one again and then I also would I oh I also had to allow myself to feel the deeper stuff that was under the envy because there was a lot of feelings of inadequacy myself you know that my life perhaps wasn't what I wanted it to be and so I had to allow that too and then I remember one time I came into the lunchroom and she um, was there and it was, it was almost like I had a tape recorder set to pause and my fingers just was like going to push and the whole same story was going to come out. And I just said, you know what? I don't want to do that one again. And it wasn't so much out of aversion. It was just like, I've done that so many times. I just don't want to cause myself that kind of suffering. And I didn't do it. Years later, I actually wound up teaching with this person some retreats. And it was so beautiful because over time it got to be that we actually became friends and then I actually began to enjoy and celebrate her successes rather than feel envy. It's very liberating when we can get to that point that we know the story so well that we don't have to go there. We can say, okay, no, I'm not going to do that. But you can see that that's different from saying, no, I, can't, I don't want that, right? It's like, no, done that one. So through this process of understanding, understanding our challenges, the afflictive mind states that come our way, it really leads to a sense of unity within ourselves. If we don't have to run, then we can be at peace. Sometimes I call it um, bringing the pieces home. It's like all the parts of ourselves that we've rejected and um, made not okay. When we can hold them with mindfulness and with acceptance, there's a feeling of wholeness that develops. So let's take a few minutes to look at fear. I said I would talk about fear. What is fear? First of all, what is fear? It's moving away from the truth of our vulnerability. It's fleeing the present, desperately trying to avoid anything that may cause us suffering. Fear darkens the mind and paralyzes the mind definitely narrows the focus, blocks out the whole picture like any afflictive emotion, can even distort us, distort perception and um, trick us. There's a story of a monk who lived in a cave and was painting this beautiful tiger on his cave, and he painted it so well that then he believed it was real. That's what happens with fear. We paint a story that's so scary, and then we believe it's real. But fear also isn't always an afflictive mind state. It's not always negative. Fear is an inherent part of the spiritual path. As Pema Chodron says, embarking on the spiritual journey is like getting into a very small boat and setting out on the ocean to search for unknown lands. With wholehearted practice comes inspiration, but sooner or later we will also encounter fear. Like all explorers, we are drawn to discover what's out there waiting without knowing yet if we have the courage to face it. 
It's not a terrible thing that we feel fear when faced with the unknown. It's part of being alive, something we all share. Fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. Practice requires that we go beyond our comfort zone over and over again as we learn to make peace with this world as it is. And this can cause fear to arise. Trungpa Rinpoche says, in order to experience fearlessness, it is necessary to experience fear. This is the last thing we usually want to hear about fear. But it's been my experience that we must approach fear and hold it carefully that this is really the only way to free ourselves. So as with all afflictive mind states, we go into the fear and observe it. What is it like? What does it feel like in the body? What kind of sensations are associated with it? What are the thoughts? What's the groove the mind falls into? And really, what is fear but unpleasant body sensations and unpleasant thoughts? And we learn over time to be able to be with fear with less um, less getting swept away, more mindfulness. We have to do this kind of uh, exploration with so much gentleness. Sometimes we feel like when we have these afflictive mind states that I've mentioned that we should just, that what I'm saying is we should just dive into the heart of it and um, that, that, that'll work, that'll solve the problem. We actually have to learn how to approach them with, some of them, the real sticky ones, with great gentleness. One of the kinds of fear that I've worked with I call the black hole. When I first started practicing, I would find myself in this place that was like, I called it the black hole. It was like kind of like being out in outer space, spinning in outer space, and nobody was going to find me. And um, it was really quite terrifying. And when I first started to work with it, I again, I would just get lost, like the panic I would just get lost. And so the first thing I actually had to learn how to do was how to get out of it. So often with the real sticky ones, the first thing you have to learn how to do is to get out of it. Because if you just go in and get lost there, you're just conditioning being lost, right? So with the black hole first, I learned how to get out of it. And I learned how to be in it mindfully. And then just like with um, the envy, eventually I started to say, I would see it coming, and I would say, oh, hello. It's my old friend, the black hole. And it was kind of like the monster would be like, huh? This isn't what I expected out of Rebecca. (laughs) There was no place to land. But it's a process, and we really have to respect where we're at. It's not about diving into our deepest pain and... um, you know, it's not, it's not like you, if you don't know how to swim, you don't go out and jump in the middle of the ocean first. You learn how to swim. You learn how to wade and how to do a few strokes, and then, and then you can uh, explore more deeply. A few years ago, I got inspired um, to make a certain kind of a talk, to do a certain kind of a talk, when I'd come back from that trip to Burma, when I was there, one of the uh, the teacher of our seminar, he had done a talk on the, I think it was 10 different kinds of equanimity. I thought that was so impressive. And then I heard about a teacher in um, Thailand who can talk about 20 kinds of silence. That's really getting to know it, right? So I thought, well, what can I write a talk on that I know so much about and I thought well fear so I said how many different kinds of fear can I identify that I've learned about through my meditation practice and so I came up with a list of 13 and now it's expanded to 15 
I'll probably think of a couple more. So I'll read to you my list of the different kinds of fear I um, learned about through my practice. And it's not um, for you to remember the whole list or anything, but maybe as an inspiration for your own favorite afflictive mind state. So from the strongest to the weakest, the first fear is annihilation. This is kind of like being killed. It's so tender you can almost not touch it. Abject terror. That's the black hole. Very tender and vulnerable place. Then there's numb fear. This is when um, you can't even feel the fear, but it's there. It's like it's like being frozen. Then there's dissociated fear. This is where the mind just slips away, like goes blank or. Whoosh. Then there's panic, which I already described. Then there's alert fear. This is when um, easily getting startled. So like afraid something bad will come at any moment. That kind of alert fear. Then there's prickly fear. Prickly fear that keeps people away. Then there's fear of a thing like a snake or something, what we would often just call fear. Then there's, then there's one. This one actually is considered wholesome. Moral dread, it's called in Buddhism. And that's the fear that if we do something unskillful, that we will suffer the consequences. And you can see why it's wholesome. It makes the mind agitated, but it doesn't lead to suffering. It leads to freedom because it motivates us, right, to act in more skillful and wholesome ways. So that's moral dread. Then there's regular dread, which is fear of the future, like something catastrophic is going to happen. And there's fear of myself, that if I stop, it would be terrible. There's fear of the unknown. There's fear of fear. And then there's background hum fear. That to me is almost like the third kind of dukkha, the kind of existential dukkha of being human. It's like... Somebody described it like the wallpaper of the mind. It's very subtle. So then, I don't have time to go into them all tonight, but then when I was working with this um, talk, I actually went through these 13 kinds of fear, 15 kinds of fear, and I really understood which kind of aspect of mindfulness was the most effective for working, which was kind of fear. I I realized that over my 23 years of research as a practitioner into fear that I'd really learned a lot about how specifically working with each one of these was most helpful. So as I said, um, with all the afflictive mind states, but especially with fear, we heal through love. The Buddha prescribed metta, as I mentioned the other night, as an antidote for all forms of aversion, including fear. So it needs to be an exploration of love. If we find that with fear or any um, afflictive mind state that we're going in there to get rid of it, some people call it like if we're going on an archaeological dig, if we're going in there to get rid of it, is that love? And if we feel like we're going into, you know, kind of digging into our deep pain in order to get rid of it, I think it's actually more skillful to back off because we're conditioning aversion. And it's actually violent towards ourselves. You should check that out if you find yourself doing that. As Rilke said, be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart and learn to love the questions themselves. Another thing, if we're working a lot with um, aversive, difficult mind states, another antidote is to um, take time for beauty and for soothing experiences. So sometimes when people are working hard on stuff that is pretty um, 
difficult or overwhelming will suggest that they back off and go for a walk or have some tea or go look at the pond. And um, this isn't just something that we made up that's, um, you know, kind of a new agey way to do it, this practice. This actually comes from um, the teachings uh, of the Buddha. In the Vasudhi Maga, one of the commentaries, they talk about um, for people who have aversive tendencies are working with a lot of aversion, what kind of environment is best for them. A suitable resting place for one of an aversive temperament is not too high or too low, provided with shade and water, with well-proportioned posts, um, well-prepared frieze work and lattice work, brightened with various kinds of painting, with an even, smooth, soft floor adorned with festoons of flowers and a canopy of many-colored cloth, with bed and chair covered with well-spread, clean, pretty covers smelling sweetly of flowers and perfumes and scents set about for homely comfort. This is, this is from the commentaries. This is like if you have a lot of version, this is what, you're supposed to, um, what your atmosphere is supposed to be like. The right kind of, so we didn't make this up when we tell you guys to try to take it easy when it gets too intense. The right kind of road to his, lot, to his lodging is free from any sort of danger, tra- traverses clean, even ground, and has been properly prepared. And the furnishings are not too many in order to, vide, to avoid hiding places for insects and bugs and snakes and rats. The right kind of inner and outer garments for him are of any superior stuff, such as china cloth, Silk, fine cotton, fine linen. Then this one's great. Suitable persons to serve him are handsome, pleasing, well-bathed, (laughs) well-anointed, scented with the perfume of incense and flowers. Anyway, it goes on and on. And all we're doing is telling you to have a cup of tea and go for a walk. (laughs) Mm. But the idea is be gentle. I mean, that's the idea with that whole list is when there's a lot of aversion, it's important to um, be kind and gentle. Oh, we're running out of time. So the suggestion of moving towards afflictive mind states may sound like a grim struggle at times. When I read my list of 15 kinds of fear, you might have kind of gone, oh, wow. Um, But done with a proper attitude of care and gentleness and metta, we find that this kind of an investigation actually increases the flexibility of our minds and the joy in our lives. We find, or I found, that through my exploration over the years of fear, at the same time I found that my heart and my mind were so much more open to happiness. And so I realized that my list of 15 kinds of fears was incomplete without my list of all the kinds of happiness that I have also explored through practice. And coincidentally, there's 15 kinds of happiness So through practice, I've explored and tasted the happiness of simple presence, the happiness of sense pleasures, the happiness of stillness, the happiness of a clear conscience, the happiness of love, happiness of compassion, the thrill of joy, the happiness of delighting in others, happiness, mutita, the happiness of contentment, of peace, of equanimity, bliss, the happiness of non-separation, and background hum, happiness. Sometimes people worry that meditation will make us flat. 
I don't think it makes us flat. Oh, and one more happiness, the happiness of giving. I missed that one. It's on the next page. Happiness doesn't, um, you know, sometimes people worry that, like, when we talk about dealing with emotions, that somehow we're going to make ourselves flat. But I find that meditation makes us more alive. We get to be more of who we are, the beautiful within So in practice, we find that we spiral around, going deeper with each pass. So it may seem that we return sometimes to the same old things, but with deeper understanding and depth each time. And sometimes, just when we think we've reached our edge, this is when we go deeper. There's a story from Suzuki Roshi. A student of Suzuki Roshi is a publisher of beat poetry, saw his teacher of a year and a half in a private interview. He said that he couldn't continue, that every time he sat Zazen, he started to cry. I can't take it, he said. I'm leaving. I can't be here anymore. Suzuki didn't tell him to stay. He merely said, you try and you try and you fail and then you go deeper. So we may have periods of calmness and happiness in our practice and periods of dukkha. They may last minutes or weeks or years. Calm and equanimity shows us the way to our deeper conditioning, the turbulence of the mind, and dealing with that and accepting these deeper layers opens us to more calm. It's a lifelong process as we develop what the Buddha called unshakable liberation of mind and heart. I love Pablo Neruda. I read, um, I've read a, a lot of his poetry, and there was one poetry, one poem he had that describes life journey, and he says, he describes life's journey as to search for the light that sings inside of me, the unwavering light. So our journey is to find that light even if we need to search in darkness to do so. To search for the light that sings inside of us, the unwavering light. So I'd like to end with a story, a little quote from... um, Jack Cornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry. And it's about, um, it's a Buddhist teacher, an unnamed Buddhist teacher, who talked about the transformation in his life through practice. In many ways, the spiritual transformation of the past decades is different than I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and ways of being. So that on the outside, I'm not this amazingly transformed, enlightened person I had first hoped to become. But there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and temper have softened the way that I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformed, and my love has grown larger. If my life was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into furniture and judging myself, Now it's like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left open. I've got the same old stuff there, yet it doesn't limit me like before. I'm the same, yet now I'm free to move about, even to fly. Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.